One of the fun things about kids is that they're incredibly curious. I remember when my children were little bitty, they were constantly asking me questions that I had a hard time answering. And sometimes the questions they would ask would be kind of funny. And sometimes the questions they asked would really help me to think in ways I hadn't thought before. Uh, This past week I came across some questions that children asked that I thought were really cute and I wanted to begin this message today sharing them with you. So someone asks, uh, Mom, my belly hurts. Am I pregnant? Ask a five-year-old boy. (laughs) A little girl asks, Why do I have two eyes if I see only one thing? Now that's a good question, isn't it? That's a great question. A little boy asks, Why do swear words get invented if we're not allowed to say them? He's got a point, doesn't he? And then one little girl asks, Why do we have to be born young and grow old? Why can't we be born old and get young? Sweet questions. But we don't stop asking questions after we get a little older. Uh, We get older, and a lot of times the questions that we ask we ask of God. And so sometimes the questions are are, are big. We look at a world that's so broken and we ask, God, why why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, Sometimes we ask questions that, you know, are a little more um, philosophical. We ask, what is my purpose in life? Uh, What am I put here to do? Sometimes the questions get get personal. We might, might ask, God, will you really forgive all my sins? We struggle with that. And sometimes our questions can be a little bit indicting, especially if those questions are asked out of of pain. And so we might ask, God, why did you let this happen to me? When I was planning the preaching this year, one of the things I wanted to do is spend some time looking at those big questions, those questions that all of us from time to time ask. And yet this year, the more I've been in the Gospels, I began to notice that Jesus was continually asking questions. Jesus wasn't asking questions because he didn't know the answers, but Jesus was asking these questions so that we would wrestle with and struggle with these these questions. Over a hundred times in the Gospels, actually something like 200 times, Jesus is asking questions. So I thought, how fun would it be for the next few weeks if we just spend a little bit of time looking at those moments in the ministry of Jesus where he would ask people questions. I mean, there are all kinds of questions that he asks. And so Jesus at one point asks, so why do you doubt? And as I hear that question, I I ask myself, why is it that I'm filled with, with all these doubts at times? On another occasion, Jesus said, so why are you so afraid? Actually, he asked that question a number of times uh, in his ministry. And that is, a, that is an interesting question. I mean, we have faith in God. Why is it that a lot of times we're so filled with, with all this fear? Uh, one of the questions Jesus asked, on the face of it, it seems kind of odd or strange. So he's interacting with this man who'd been an invalid for 38 long years. And when he comes to him, the question he poses is, so do you want to get well? Now, we hear that question and we wonder, well, you know, if if he'd asked me that question, I would say, of course. I mean, 
I've been ill. I've been in bed. I've been an invalid for 38 years. But Jesus has a point. I mean, sometimes change is hard. Do we really want to get well? I like the question that Jesus asks in the Sermon on the Mount when he was speaking with his disciples. And he said to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? That's a great question. Because... I find myself at times wondering, why is it that I commit the same sin? Why is it that I do the same things over and over again? I mean, I stand in front of people and talk about Jesus and talk about living for the Lord. And so why is it that I struggle a lot of times with the same things? One of the most poignant questions, and this will be the question we'll ask at the very end of our message series is found in John 21 where Jesus had had gone to the cross and he'd been raised from the dead and he was spending time ministering to his disciples. And it's that that moment on the beach when the disciples are out, they've been out all night and and they look and they finally they see that someone's on the beach and and that person is making uh, lunch, making dinner, and they recognize it's, it's Jesus. This is the first time Peter has seen Jesus since he denied him three times. And so in John 21, you have this poignant moment when it's just Jesus and Peter. And Jesus looks at Peter around that charcoal fire, that same kind of fire Peter was around when he denied the Lord three times. And he looked at Peter and Jesus says, do you love me? And I asked myself, do I, do I love Jesus? I mean, really, down deep. Do, do I love him? I talk a lot about him. I stand here and preach. But do I love Jesus? We're going to let Jesus ask us that question as we move through this message series. But in many ways, the first question that we're going to consider today sets the stage for all the others. This first question really will determine how we answer the rest of Jesus' questions. And that question is found in Mark chapter 8. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Mark chapter 8, down around verse 27. We'll we'll spend some time uh, with that question in just a moment. Now, this first question that we're going to consider deals with the identity of Jesus. And Mark seems to be very concerned about this. In the opening line in his book, In Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, he tells us about Jesus, and he's very clear about his identity. The book opens this way. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Who is Jesus? Well, it's no mystery. Mark lets us know the very first uh, verse in his book. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Then near the end of the book, in Mark chapter 15, a Roman centurion, after witnessing the crucifixion of Jesus, after watching as the sky grows dark and there's this eerie, weird, three-hour darkness, after listening to all the things that Jesus has said while on the cross, the centurion says in Mark 15, verse 39, surely this was the Son of God. This man was the Son of God. And so we have these two statements at the very beginning of Mark's gospel and at the very end of Mark's gospel about the identity of Jesus. Even demons cry out in in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
It seems everyone in Mark's gospel understands who Jesus is except his disciples. Everyone gets it except those who are closest to him. And so in Mark chapter 4, you have this familiar story that we'll talk about more next Sunday morning where the disciples had been out on the lake. They'd been out all night on the lake. Now understand, they'd, they'd been on lake this lake before because a lot of the disciples were fishermen. They'd been up all night. They're, they're in a boat in, on this lake, and a terrible storm came up. In fact, Mark describes it a furious storm. This is an angry storm. And so you can imagine as the, the waves, you know, are literally lapping over the boat, the boat is taking on water, and these guys are very afraid. And they wonder, where's Jesus? They can't find Jesus anywhere. He's down below. And Mark tells us he's asleep. And Mark, I like, I like this little detail that Mark gives us. It's, it's so fascinating. Mark says that, that he's sleeping on a cushion. I mean, Jesus is really, he must be really sleeping. He's, he's on this cushion. They waken him. He comes up, and it says he rebukes the wind. He says, quiet, be still. I almost expect Jesus to say, stop, you're disturbing my sleep. And after Jesus says that, this amazing thing happens. I mean, they're in the midst of a storm. Suddenly, water gets still and the the raging storm ceases and the disciples at this point now are really terrified because they know this person in the boat is is no ordinary person they know this person is not just an incredible teacher they know this person is not just you know someone who can um you know captivate a crowd with his words who's very compassionate There's something different about him. And so the disciples say, they ask this question, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Who is this? And so now we're in the middle of Mark, Mark chapter 8, and Jesus has been doing all these things like like healing the sick and feeding 4,000 And then, right before the scripture that was read to us a moment ago, right before that scripture, right before Mark 8, uh, 27, or or actually 37, right before that passage, we have this fascinating two-stage miracle that Jesus does. There's no other miracle in the Bible like it, or in, in the New Testament like it. No other miracle that Jesus does that's like this miracle. And so this guy's blind, and what does Jesus do? He spits in his eyes. Spits in his eyes. And then he asks, can you see? And the guy says, no, you just spit in my eyes. Actually, he doesn't say that, but you might expect him to say that. He says, I, I, I see people, but they're like, they're like trees. And then Jesus touches the man, and suddenly he is able to to see his eyes now are opened says mark so after that interesting miracle now we find jesus and his disciples and they're in these villages they're in these villages in and around caesarea philippi and this is where jesus looks at his disciples and he asks the question that we're going to talk about today he looks at them and says who do people say i am what's the word on the street what's everybody saying about me 
And so they, they start recounting what they're hearing out on the street. Uh, they say, well, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. That's interesting since by this time, John the Baptist is already dead. And so do they think that, that John the Baptist has come back to the life now and, and that's who he is? He says, uh, they say, some say you're Elijah. That's fascinating because, you know, the last book in your Old Testament, the book of Malachi, in the last two or three verses at the end of Malachi, Malachi prophesies that there's going to be somebody who's going to be a type of, a, of a Elijah. He's going to come back and he's going to do something powerful. He's going to draw, draw parents' hearts back to their kids and draw the hearts of kids back to their parents. And so some are out there saying, maybe that's who Jesus is. He's this type of Elijah. And then somebody else says, well, no, they're saying that you're one of the prophets. And certainly Jesus had a real prophetic edge to his message. I mean, Jesus said these amazing things, and most people loved how he spoke and loved what he said. But there are times when Jesus' words were very prophetic, meaning he spoke a word from God that was powerful and that was to the point and that was cutting. And so then Jesus, Jesus says, so who do you say that I am? You see, Jesus doesn't really respond to all their responses. Who do, you, who do people say I am? They get all these responses, and then Jesus looks at them, and he asks a more pointed question, a more personal question. And he goes from preaching to meddling. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And brothers and sisters, that's not only a question that, that they needed to answer, but that's a question that every one of us in this room should answer. And how we answer that question should affect everything. You see, you could answer that question the way many in our increasingly more secular culture would answer it. Have you noticed we're part of a culture that generally likes Jesus? Uh, uh, you know, while many people wouldn't say that he is God come in the flesh, that seems a bit too much. Most people I meet, particularly secular people, would say, well, Jesus was a great teacher. In fact, they would say, we like a lot of the things he taught. He was this wonderful moral teacher. I mean, think of all the, the great things he taught. He, he talked about how we should turn the other cheek. He talked about how we should go the second mile. He said we should even love people who are enemies, love our enemies. Jesus said all of that. Jesus taught this wonderful ethic. And you know, if we listen to Jesus and apply a few of the things that he teaches well, that's a pretty good way to live. That's not a bad, a bad way to go about our life. But you see, the great C.S. Lewis in a previous generation helped us to see that Jesus could not just merely be a good moral teacher. That option is simply not open. So let me ask you a question. Would a good moral teacher lie would a good moral teacher purport himself to be one thing when in fact he knows that is not true? You see, that wouldn't be good or that wouldn't be moral. That would be deceiving. And Jesus claimed far more for himself than he was just a good moral teacher. For instance, 
For instance, Jesus believed he could forgive sins. Earlier in this same book that we're reading, Mark chapter 2, some people came to Jesus with this paralyzed man, and the crowds were so large because Jesus was teaching. He was inside this house. They couldn't get to him, and so they took him around and, and up on top of the roof, and they began to tear open this hole in the roof, and these four men lowered this paralyzed man down in front of Jesus. And Jesus stopped teaching, and the first thing he said to that man was, not what you think. He doesn't say, you know, be healed. The first thing he said to him was, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders, they were astounded by what Jesus had said. They said, well, this is blasphemous. And it really was if he wasn't God. Because they said, only God can forgive sins. And they're right. Jesus was claiming far more for himself than he was just a good moral teacher. And Jesus made strikingly exclusive claims. Have you noticed this? For instance, in John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No person comes to me, comes to the Father except through me. Now, there are a lot of people in this world who say, I'm not sure you can really know truth. Or, or we hear this phrase a lot today. People say, well, this is, this is my truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 14 and verse 9, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If he were just a good moral teacher, if he were just somebody who was born into this world and he said some, some catchy you know, pithy things, if, if that's all he was, then he's lying. Because Jesus claimed to be far more. Now, maybe Jesus was crazy, but the option that he was just a good moral teacher is frankly not open to us. So the question is, who do we say that he is? Jesus asked that question, and, and, and Peter is the first one to speak up. Peter says, You are the Messiah. Peter, it seems, knows who Jesus is. He seems to get it right. He understands. Who is this? Well, Peter says, he's the long, you are the long-awaited Messiah. You are the anointed one. And then in verse 30, Jesus says something very curious. Jesus said, okay, now don't, don't tell anyone. Let's just keep this quiet. And we scratch our heads and go, why? I mean, isn't this the truth that we should shout from the rooftops? I mean, isn't this what Jesus wants his disciples to know and to teach? You go tell everyone, the Messiah is here. He has come. The anointed one is among us. But Jesus says to Peter, don't don't tell anyone. And we wonder, why does he say that? Well, maybe he's using reverse psychology. Maybe he he knows that if he says, Peter, don't tell anyone, well, Peter will do the exact opposite, and he will go and tell everyone about it. Maybe that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is brilliant after all. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. You see, Peter understands, but he doesn't understand. He mouths the right words, but quite honestly, he doesn't know the significance of his words. Peter, he needs a second touch. 
Peter's eyes are opened, he can see vaguely, he can see clearly enough to say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. We've seen you do some things. We know you're different. You are the Messiah. But he doesn't see clearly as of yet. And this brings us to the moment in this story, right after the verses we read, where where Peter, where Jesus says some interesting things. Jesus, Jesus says, now here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and people are going to betray me, and, um, and I'm going to die, and then after three days, I'm, I'm going to be raised. And Peter hears this, and, and Peter can't stand what he's hearing. And so Peter, it says, he begins to rebuke Jesus. He takes Jesus aside, and Peter begins to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? He's rebuking the Messiah. He's rebuking the Son of God. Peter, his eyes clearly are not opened as of yet. He needs that second touch. And you remember what Jesus says to Peter? Jesus, he he turns to the other disciples. It's like he wants them to hear what he's about ready to say to Peter, because they don't get it either. And he says, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter, the one who had just made this very beautiful statement, you are the Messiah. Now he says to Peter, you get behind me, Satan. What a, what a stinging rebuke. And he goes on to say, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns think for just a moment about this satan cunningly uses one disciple peter to turn him away from death and another disciple judas to lead him into death i wonder if some of us are more like peter than we realize we confess this beautiful truth you are the messiah i mean we're not like people in the world who say well no Jesus was just a a good man, a good moral teacher, but he's really nothing more than that. I mean, after all, we're a church. We know that Jesus is more than that. We know that Jesus is, is God come in the flesh. And we mouth the words, you are the Messiah. But, but I wonder if some of us might need a second touch because though we understand, though we mouth the words, we may not really understand what it means to make that beautiful statement, that wonderful confession. And it's like, it's like Jesus understands this. So he's going to tell Peter and the rest of the disciples, and he's going to tell us what's implied, what's involved as we make that great statement. He says three things that are pretty tough to hear. Okay, he says, if I'm the Messiah, if I'm the anointed one, here's what you must do. The next few verses, he says, You must deny yourself. We must deny ourselves, he said. Now, let me be clear about what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying we can never enjoy life. He's not saying we can never enjoy the simple pleasures. He's not saying that that now life is going to be dull and drab. We must deny ourselves. He's not saying we're to deny something. He's saying we must deny self. 
Let me say that one more time. He's not saying we should deny something. He is saying we should deny, we must deny self. This is much more radical. We're to deny that part of us that wants to be indulged, that wants to be catered to. We're denying that subtle temptation to make ourselves the very center of everything. No, now God is at the center of everything. We put ourselves at the center and we have this mad search for happiness and we never quite find it. Or we put God at the center of our lives and he blesses us with this abundant gift of joy. It's an amazing thing, really. Jesus says, you make that confession that that I'm the Messiah. It means first that we must deny ourselves. It means second that we take up a cross. Now, the cross is an instrument of death. It creates a powerful image in our minds, doesn't it? It suggests sacrifice and and maybe even pain. We're to deny ourselves to the point of giving our lives. And it might mean we give ourselves literally. That's what Peter would do. Peter eventually would literally give his life on a cross. But I doubt that it'll mean that for most of us in this room but it does mean we'll give ourselves in service. We'll give ourselves sacrificing for others. And when you give your life to another and it costs and even hurts, in the end you find real joy and meaning. It's like until you find what you'll die for, I wonder if you really have learned to live. And this week, as I was thinking about this idea, and I was, as I was thinking about people who literally give themselves for others, and, yet in, and it's a tough, difficult, hard thing, and yet in the end find joy, I couldn't help but think of mothers. I couldn't help but think about those ladies who, who get the beautiful news, we're, we're going to have a baby, and now suddenly everything about life changes, the body changes, everything changes, and your focus is that life that's growing within you, and it's painful and hard and difficult, and the baby is born, and oh, there's a lot of pain there, and yet there's incredible joy, isn't there? And ladies in this room would say, oh, I, it was tough, it was difficult, but it was worth it. We must deny ourselves. Take up a cross, an instrument of death. We die to ourselves. And then finally, he says, we follow Jesus. We arrange our lives around him, taking our cues from him, listening to him. We don't get ahead of Jesus. I want to remind you again of the words that that Jesus said to Peter. When Peter took Jesus aside and began to explain to him, and Peter and Jesus said those strong words to Peter, and then he said, you get where? You get behind me. And that's where disciples are to be. Behind Jesus, listening to Jesus, taking our cues from him. And so here's the question we end with this morning. Jesus looks at us and he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And how you answer that question will change everything, particularly if you understand how to answer it correctly. If you understand when we make that confession, we're saying, Lord, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up a cross, and I'm going to follow you wherever it leads. Now, that sounds risky and even dangerous. Why would anyone do this? Why would anyone make this kind of commitment, make this confession? In the next couple of verses, we see some real irony from Jesus because Jesus tells us if, if you want to save your life, 
if you want to save your life, if, if that's what life is to you, if you want to play it safe, save your life, he says, then you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for me, serving others, giving your life for me, he says the amazing thing is that's, that's when you find life. And then Jesus uses at the very end this language of, of commerce where he talks about reward and he, he talks about profit. This passage speaks of joy and reward. He says, do you want your life to count? Do you want your life to make a profit? Or do you want your life to be a loss? And Jesus is in essence saying, I want your life to make a profit. I want your life to be full and abundant and and filled with life and joy. It comes as you understand what it means to follow me. And so the question is, who do you say that I am? Really? Who do you say Jesus is? This morning, if if you have a need we can help you with, I'll be down front. We'll have some elders in the very back would love to speak with you. This morning, if, if you're ready to answer that question, I believe that he's Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, and I want to give my life to him. If we can help you with that, we'd love to. Come as we stand and as we sing.